Greetings, friends, and welcome to a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host. This podcast is brought to you by Media Gratii, and what we're doing over the course of weeks as God spares us is looking at some of the sermons of the Victorian preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man who was gifted by God to make known the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we study his ministry, we're looking at the preaching of the scriptures. We're trying to learn more of that gospel and a little of how to preach it for ourselves. The sermon we're looking at today is simply entitled Forgiveness. It was preached on May the 20th, 1855. Its text was Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Spurgeon on this occasion has quite a brief introduction That's not unusual for him. Here he simply points out that he believes that there are such things as salvation texts, portions of scripture that God in his mercy seems to have designed to catch the attention and to capture the souls of the unconverted. And he believes that this text is one of the chief of them. And he has then this tension in him as he approaches it. On the one hand, there's the expectation of blessing. He anticipates that my master will give me souls, and that's a good spirit for a preacher to go into the pulpit with. On the other hand, there's a sense of fearfulness, lest he should spoil such a clear passage by the way he handles it. And that too is a proper disposition for a preacher, this mix of confidence in God and uh, almost a despair of oneself. And the resolution of those two things is, says Spurgeon, to cast myself implicitly on the help of the Spirit, so that whatever I speak may be suggested by him, and whatever he saith, that may I speak to the exclusion of my own thoughts as much as possible. Here then is this lovely window into Spurgeon's attitude as a preacher self-renunciation, self-forgetfulness and dependence upon God, anticipating that as the Spirit helps him, so he will be fruitful. And from his text, he's going to draw out four main points. The recipients of mercy, the persons of whom the Lord is here speaking, the deed of mercy, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions, the reason for mercy, for mine own sake, and fourthly, the promise of mercy, I will not remember thy sins. Just another little example here of Spurgeon the exegete, or Spurgeon the expositor. Some people dismiss Spurgeon very quickly and easily and say that he's not a a very textual preacher, he's not a very careful preacher, he's not a particularly fine exegete. And yes, there are times when he does his own thing his own way. You might agree with his principles of interpretation or his handling of the text. But here, as so often, it's so immediately clear that his points are rooted in, anchored to the text its particular ideas and even its very clauses so that they rise naturally out of the words of Scripture, answering questions that spring to mind, identifying uh, groups or individuals or actions that are there explicitly or implicitly 
in the word of God. And so here he is, and he's working very much from these very words. And remember, he'd said, I don't want to use my words and thoughts, but rather those of God. So his first point is, who are the recipients of mercy? And he he goes straight for the, the, the jugular in a gospel sense. He begins with those who may be the very chief of sinners. And it's quite likely that he's here, as it were, working from the greater to the lesser. He, he he's conscious that if he describes the worst case, then every lesser case also is captured in the same net. And he basically says that God here is speaking to great sinners and he divides them up. He uh, looks from different angles at the people who are spoken of in the text itself and draws a line from that to the the people who are sitting in front of him. So first of all, they are a prayerless people. They have not called upon the name of the Lord. And prayerless souls, he says, are Christless souls. You have no communion with God unless you are often at his mercy seat. Or what about despisers of religion? Uh, The same verse in the context, you have been weary of me, O Israel. And he says there are some here then perhaps who despise religion and who hate God. Religion is not only unlovely to you, it's something that wearies you. But he says, if you are in that state and you're repenting of that and desire to be like that no longer, then God is speaking to you and to people like you. Also, he says, thankless persons. They've had no regard for God's mercies. They haven't had any sense of God's kindness toward them and any response to them. But again, if that's you, then here is a God who calls you to repent. Furthermore, they were a useless people. They haven't served God. They haven't glorified him. And he says, you may be in the same position. You've been uh, vile in your life. You've been no good, not just to man, but to God himself. And yet, here is a gospel for you. Then there are so-called sanctuary sinners, sinners in Zion. And he talks here with, with some feeling about people who've been brought up under the word of God. And he says, when they come under conviction of sin, you often see them just cut to the very heart by the remembrance of what privileges they had turned their backs upon up to that point. And yet here is a message, an offer of mercy. And again, There are people who had wearied God. You have wearied me with your iniquities, says the Lord, to the same people of whom he says, I will blot out your transgressions. So here is somebody who has perhaps professed religion, says Spurgeon. He's gone through the motions and yet he was always a bond slave of sin. And now Spurgeon says, Come back to the Lord. If you have backslidden, if you have uh, pretended, God is ready to have mercy upon you. And he just has a little note then at the end of that first point. Say, these are the characters who receive mercy. What if people say, how dare you, you talk to us like this? Or why do you have such a bad opinion of us? And he's very blunt. 
If you want to go somewhere just to get a nice moral sermon, you can go and get one. But I've come in my master's name to preach to sinners. And so he's very, very clear about what he's doing and how and why he's doing it and to whom he is speaking. So he's really cutting his way down and saying, I'm speaking to you if you are someone who needs to be saved from your sins. And that brings him to his second point. Now that he's identified his target, if you will, as a a repenting sinner. And notice that because all the way through he said, now, if you're weary of that sin, if you no longer want to have this character, he's not presuming in a carnal sense, but he's trusting that either before he's preached or as he's preaching, the Lord is cutting these people to the heart and he's making them see themselves in the mirror of God's word. He's bringing them to the point where he wants them to be ready to learn about this deed of mercy. And the deed of mercy is a deed of forgiveness. And again, he's simply going to, as it were, walk around this this word, this idea, and he is going to study it in its different aspects. First of all, it's divine forgiveness. And he draws that from the words, I, even I, am he who does these things. It is distinctively God who forgives. And that forgiveness can come from no one else. And the marvel then is that when everything else fails as a way of cleansing our sins, here is the God who is ready to blot out your sins for his own sake. Furthermore, it is surprising forgiveness. And he says it's as if God himself sounds surprised that that such sins should be put away. And the emphasis, I, even I, is that you should realize that you didn't, as it were, mishear the first time. That now God himself is still offering pardon. And we should not, in one sense, expect that because of the sin But we can, as it were, look at the God who offers this forgiveness and say, is this not a marvellous thing? Furthermore, it's a present forgiveness. God is offering it in this very moment and saying, I can grant it to you now. The, the, The reality is a present reality. And God, having forgiven sin, will no longer require the debt to be paid again. And then he says, I I can't help noticing the completeness of this forgiveness. It is a full discharge, the language of blotting out. There's nothing else left. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. That was Luther's declaration to to Satan when he uh, thought of Satan bringing him uh, the, the great list of all his transgressions. No. He says you can write that it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So just briefly, under those four headings, divine, surprising, present and complete forgiveness, Spurgeon is holding out to those whom he's identified as perhaps even the very chief of sinners as a forgiveness that answers every part and portion of their need. But he's got to keep moving. And very briefly, the reason for mercy. And and again, he's putting himself in the feet 
in the shoes of the, the people to whom he's speaking, and he's anticipating that they're going to ask, but why should God forgive me? And he understands then the way that uh, the human heart works because very often when as sinners we come under conviction of sin and Satan loves to drive us to extremes in this way perhaps to begin with we say I don't need forgiveness and then when the spirit brings us to understand our need of forgiveness the devil then drives us toward despair as if to say well there's no hope for someone like me now that I see my sins how could I ever expect to be forgiven And Spurgeon delights to make clear, I am not about to forgive you for your own sake, says the Lord, but for my own sake. Here again is the the language of the text itself. I, even I, says the Lord, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. This is the marvel of grace. And it means then that you cannot argue that your sins are too great to be pardoned. It doesn't matter in that sense that you don't deserve for your sins to be pardoned. God desires a reputation for mercy. And so the worse you are, the more God is honoured in your salvation. Your wretchedness, your vileness is the very reason why you can come to God. God delights to show mercy, to show the greatness of his pardoning love in putting away sins for his own sake. And so he presses on the promise of mercy. What's bound up in this offer of forgiveness? God will not remember your sins. Now he says there are some things which even God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot forsake his people. He cannot disown his covenant. He he cannot, as it were, unguard himself. And here's one of the things that you might have thought that God could not do, forget. So in what sense should we understand God's forgetfulness of our sins? What does it mean for God to say, I will no longer take these into account. I will put them out of my mind. And again, he's got these uh, lovely brief little statements. First of all, God will not exact punishment for them when we come before his judgment bar at last. Now, the Christian will have many accusers. The devil will come and say, that man is a great sinner. I do not remember it, says God. That man rebelled against you and cursed you, says the accuser. I do not remember it, says God, for I have said that I will not remember his sins. What about conscience? Conscience accuses you. I don't remember that, says God, because I have determined I will not remember his sins. So Spurgeon says that it doesn't matter where the accusations come from. God has asked, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Why? Because he does not remember our sin. The the judge does not remember it. Who then shall punish? And he uses that beautiful language. I will cast your sins into the depths of the sea, not into the shallows where they might be fished up again, but the very depths of the sea where Satan himself cannot find them. And again, he's using this to reinforce the perfection, the completeness of the forgiveness that God holds out. 
there are no such things as sins recorded against God's people. That's a staggering statement, and yet it's gloriously true. Christ has so taken them away that sin becomes a non-entity to Christians. It is all gone, and through Jesus' blood, they are clean. What a precious truth for God's people, and what a precious offer for those who need to have their sins forgiven. We need to remember, and we're not always good at doing so, that the sufficiency, the completeness of the work of Jesus Christ means that washed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness, God having put away our sins, they no longer are reckoned to our account. And to know that is the very root of peace, uh, subjectively speaking, with God, that there's nothing left on my account, that I will never be punished for the sins that I have committed because Jesus Christ has been punished in my place. Spurgeon goes on, not only will they never be brought before God with regard to judgment, but God will not remember your sins to suspect you. And he uses this lovely little illustration. A father who's got a wayward son, lives a loose life, comes home again repenting. The father says, I will forgive you. But he says next day to his younger son, uh, there's some business to do and I want you to go and do the, do the work. And here's the money to do the business. He's not trusting the son who's come home again because he trusted him before and so he doesn't trust him again. And you can understand that when you've been disappointed perhaps time and time again, somebody's let you down over and over, you're not inclined to go to them as the first person upon whom you're going to rely in another needy situation. They're, They're careless, they're unreliable, whatever it may be, no, you'll find someone who's trustworthy. Here's the marvel of grace. Our heavenly father says, I will not remember your sins. That means that even though we have sinned greatly against God, we are not permanently wrecked. That God can take the one who was wretched and vile and having cleansed them and restored them, God loves them just as much as if they'd never gone astray and is willing to put them to work. That's such an encouragement. Now, need to understand this correctly. Spurgeon's not saying that you can just go on sinning and it never has any impact on your usefulness or your position in the church of Jesus Christ. Not at all. What he is saying is that your life before conversion doesn't make any difference to the way that God is willing to use you. In fact, it may be the very platform upon which he's willing to build in order to use you in a particular way. God uses us even though we have been great sinners. He's not always suspicious of us. He's not going to, as it were, perpetually punish us for the sins of the past even though some of those sins may in fact constrain how we are useful and the ways in which we can and in some cases cannot serve. So God is no longer suspicious toward us. And then the last thing, 
God is not going to remember our sins when it comes to the distribution of the recompense of the reward. The earthly parent again, he says, kindly passes over the faults of the prodigal. But you know that when that father comes to die and the lawyer is sitting by his side to make the will, he says, I will give so much to my always well-behaved son and my other son so-and-so and my daughter so much. But the one that I already given so much money to and he wasted it all, well, he's not going to, to get as much now as the other's done. He's already had his portion. And what of us when we come to the, the, the day of judgment and when the Lord is smiling upon his people and welcoming, welcoming them into his kingdom? Is God going to say, well, I'm sorry, you're going to get a lesser heaven? Not at all. God brings all his children into the same glory. Now, again, there's an issue there, a question with regard to the nature of rewards. But I think we're, we're on safe ground when we say everybody's in the same heaven. Everybody enters the same glory. Everybody bears the image of Jesus Christ. And so here's the wonder of God's forgiving love. He will not remember your sins in the judgment. He will not remember your sins uh, in order to uh, trample you down in his service. And he will not remember your sins so as to diminish the reward that you receive at the last day. Here then is the power of God in salvation. And so Spurgeon pleads, believe this offer. Oh, he says, had I the power, God knows I would weep myself away in order to win your souls. But feeble our compassion proves and can but weep where most it loves. I can do nothing, he says, but preach God's gospel. And since the moment Christ forgave me, I cannot help speaking of his love. He's now pouring out his own heart. He says, I, I've been there. I've rejected this gospel. I've had no regard for God's voice. I've turned my back upon the Bible. I've refused to pray. My eyes wandered after vain things. But here I am proclaiming free grace from a man's heart who's himself received the redeeming, pardoning, saving mercies of a God who chooses the wretched and raises them from the dust heap. How loud ought I to sing, he asks, seeing that I am out of hell and delivered from condemnation. And if I am out of hell, why should not you be? Spurgeon then doesn't look down his nose upon these people. He stands among them. Even from the pulpit, he is clearly one of those to whom he speaks. He's a forgiven man who extends forgiveness on God's behalf to others. The very chief of sinners have been accepted. And why then should you foolishly conclude that you are cast out? Oh, poor penitent, if you perish, you will be the first penitent who ever did so. In one sense, the whole sermon then is a plea. From beginning to end, he is reasoning and persuading uh, that if you're a, a great sinner, then this is the very mercy that is held out to you. That though your sins may be great, yet God's determination is entirely to blot out the transgressions of those who cast themselves upon him. Why would God do that? How could God do that? For his own sake, for the glory of his own name. 
And what is this promise that he gives? That he will no longer remember your sins. They shall be put away as far as the east is from the west and they will never be brought back into the equation. The whole sermon then, as we've said, is is really a sustained plea to consider the forgiving, pardoning mercy of the Lord God. It comes from the heart of a man who simply wants to speak the word of God to sinners, who feels himself to be one among his peers, holding out the same grace that he himself has received, and who is constantly, carefully, thoughtfully uh, pulling down all the excuses and holding out this wonderful grace of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I, even I, says the Lord, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Let's let's learn from this how we are to present the gospel to sinners. Let's learn from this what we ourselves have received from the merciful hand of a mighty but gracious God. And let's understand then how from the heart of a sinner who knows himself forgiven, this joy over mercy bubbles up and with it a desire that others too should come to know the mercy that we ourselves have tasted. And so he concludes, God give you his blessing, my dear friends, for Christ's sake. And so might we all say, Amen. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app. If you want to hear more like this, visit mediagratii.org to find my Word in Season devotions, John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast, or Andy Christofides, A Ransom for Many.